Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Really enjoyed my conversation I had uh, with my, my guest today, who is South Cox of Stalker Stick Bows. If you are into traditional archery or you want to get into traditional archery, this is a great episode to kind of um, get your feet wet uh, with, with the, the subject. South's a great guy. He is well-spoken. He's written many articles in very popular magazines uh, out in the, the western side of the, the U.S. He's an extremely accomplished uh, mule deer hunter, elk hunter, um, and also blacktail hunters. And we, we kind of get, get into all that in the, in the podcast. If you have dreamt of going out west and, and hunting some big game animals out there, this is a good episode uh, to listen to. South's probably one of the most knowledgeable people as far as Western hunting goes and had a lot of good information in this podcast. So with that being said, got to thank my sponsors, the first one being Stealth Outdoors. Lou and the crew is working hard during the off season to get you guys some great deals on Stealth Strips, so, so keep an eye out on their website. I think they even got something special coming up um, I saw on Facebook, um, so, so keep an eye out on their website. Um, go in there, sign up for their email list so you can get updates on when they have um, specials and sales going on. All right, I want to talk about Exodus just for a minute. Um, you guys know I, I love the Exodus render. I had one out on a uh, brassica plot all year last year, pretty much from August until January when I went and grabbed it off the food plot. Had no issues with it. Uh, battery life was still full when I, when I picked it up. And um, yeah, great experience with it. Um, on top of that, you know, I love supporting Exodus because they're good guys. Um, they've become friends of mine, and they also go above and beyond for their customers. As you guys know, they have a great um, YouTube channel with all kinds of good deer hunting information. They also have, um, you know, stuff on that YouTube channel about trail cam specifics um, that's really helpful for the consumer. And then on top of that, they got all their podcasts that they um, they put out, and they just seem like they go above and beyond compared to most trail cam companies. So with that being said, they got something pretty interesting coming up in March here um, at Exodus. It's for the first time ever, they're offering a trade-in program for the remainder of March. So to get involved in that, you need to have an Exodus camera registered in their database, so kind of a repeat customer type deal. Uh, you can trade in any old Lyft, Lyft 2, or Trek, and lock in $100 savings off the Exodus Render um, or Render Bundle. Uh, if you're in the position to lock in these savings, um, here's what you'll need to do. Go to ExodusOutdoorGear.com and use promo code TRADEUP, T-R-A-D-E-U-P, at checkout um, to lock in your $100 in savings. So then after you make the order, the Exodus team will email you a shipping label with uh, the order number for reference to your email. You got to print that return label, put it put in your Exodus camera you're trading in. So like, say you're trading in a Trek, you put that Trek into into a box, you ship it to Exodus with their 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 label, and then once they receive that box in with your old camera, they'll ship your order in. Sounds like a great way uh, to get into a, a, a cell camera to me. If that's a little challenging to follow or I didn't describe that well, go uh, to the link in the podcast notes and follow the instructions they have on their website. Probably the best way of doing it. With that, let's get into the episode. Hey, South, how's it going? Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's going well. It's been a minute since I recorded one, so I'm happy to 
knock the rust and dust off and get back after it. Yeah, me, me and you both, We, <clears throat> it's something, uh, I started this podcast, whatever, last year, and I always thought to myself, ah, doing one a week, that'd be, that'll, that won't be a problem. We'll come to find out it's actually a little harder than what, uh, what it, what a lot of people make it uh, out to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I hear you. I, I've had a podcast now. I, I can't remember when I started it. It's been a long time. And, and it's funny, I, you know, I heard somebody say, you know, once you get a hundred podcasts, you know, in the bank there, then, uh, or have, you know, recorded, then, you're pretty much good to go. You're established. And yeah. I've got over a hundred, but it's probably been six months since I recorded the last one. So I feel pretty bad for my audience right now. <laughs> I'm feeling super guilty. <laughs> yeah. I I've done a pretty good job of getting one up a week, but it's been like, it's actually been more work than what uh, a, a person would think. Um, but yeah. it's all good. It's a, it's enjoyable. It's an enjoyable little side gig. Um, yeah. if you want to call it that. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I, I find I'm not very social. Um, I spend so much time here at work, and then I, yeah, you know, when I'm not at work, I feel like I need to be with my family. So I'm there with my family. It doesn't leave much time for anything else. So yep, I'm actually, in... yeah, recording the podcast has been a you know, or was it hasn't been for a while now, <laughs> but it it really was a nice social outlet for me. Yep, that's a. Uh... I work from home and I don't really see anybody all day other than my uh, two-year-old son that's with me. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm kind of in the same boat. I, I don't get a lot of uh, interaction with people outside of my wife and my son. So it's a, uh, it is a little bit, uh, it's nice to talk to other grownups sometimes. <laughs> yeah. No, um, I hear you there. Uh, especially about hunting and, and whatnot. But uh, with that, with that being said, the majority of my audience is going to be like your Midwestern whitetail guy. Uh -huh. Um um, so could you just do like a, a quick introduction, um, of, of who you are South and, uh, some of the things you've kind of done in life? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know how quick I can make it. But <laughs> we got all night. <laughs> I'll try so. <laughs> to give you the reader's digest version as best I can. So I started, uh, hunting with, you know, I started shooting a bow when I was about five and started hunting when I was in my early teens. I kind of came from, um, a hippie family back in uh um you know northern california and none of my family members were hunters and honestly I, I don't know how i got such a strong passion for hunting because i didn't really have any mentors um you know available for me really either as i was growing up there was here and there there was a person that i you know run into that would be into hunting and and uh, certainly bond with them um I, uh, I shot my first deer, I think I was 16 or 17, um, and got that with the compound and, and, I uh, got into, you know, really into shooting compounds, hunting with a compound for you know, a couple, couple and a half decades. And, I uh, um, started writing stories somewhere in there in my late teens, early twenties. And then that eventually, um, I, I got published in a handful of different uh, bow hunting magazines and then eventually got a staff position with Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, where I wrote um, as a field editor for them for uh, a handful of years and then did some stuff with Western Hunter magazine and uh, did a couple of TV shows and then started video in my own hunts. Um, actually, I didn't, I didn't start video in my own hunts until after I had 
uh, bought stock or stick bows. So I was, yeah. I've been a lifelong woodworker. Um, I was a flooring con hardwood flooring contractor and I did hardwood floors, stairs and handrails and I had a cabinet shop. And so I, I've been a, you know, as long as I've been a hunter, I've been a um, woodworker as well and probably equal in passion. And in 2007, the opportunity came to, to buy stalker stick bows from a buddy of mine that had started it back in the 80s. And he had ran it for, I don't know, maybe 10 years. And then he got a, um, a promotion at his work. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so the, the, the stick bow companies kind of went by the wayside. And, and uh, it sat dormant for about 10 years before I got it and then revived it. And so I spent from 2007 to 2012 um, kind of building it back up again and getting, you know, perfecting my skills as a boyer. And then I shut down my construction company in 2012 and started doing stalker stick bows full time in 2012. And I, uh, you know, haven't looked back. And, and in, oh, that's about a year ago, I bought out Dryad and A&H Archery, two other bow companies. And so we've really grown a lot. We bought a commercial building, moved into that last year, and uh, got a couple employees now. And then I've got um, one of my stepsons is a business partner uh, with me with Dryad. And, and oh, cool. uh, so, yeah, we've, we've got our hands full now. Yeah, it sounds like it. And, and yeah, you, I bought a bow a few well, I don't know. It's been four years ago now. Um, and a lot I get, I've put some stick bow, uh, videos up on our, our YouTube channel and, and it's, it's always been with, uh, with that bow. So, um, oh, right on. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I guess that's one of the main reasons I got South on was I get, man, we get, I get flooded sometimes with questions on, on, uh, um, traditional archery and, um, you know, I've, I've been doing it probably for, I don't know, 2014, 15, something like that. I think I killed my first deer back in 2000, maybe 15 with, with a trad bow. And, you know, I'm, I'm far from like, you know, an ex real experienced guy on it. Um, I, I know enough to get my own stuff tuned and everything, but I, I don't feel comfortable like giving people real solid advice, you know, on, on it. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. And I think there's probably, you got to be careful on the internet because there's probably people that have way less experience than me putting stuff on the internet about traditional archery. But I thought you would be a good person to get on and kind of chit chat about it. And I guess I didn't, didn't necessarily want to talk about like the equipment or what you need to look for on that kind of stuff. Cause there's, you know, all kinds of information out on that, but I kind of want to talk about like the mindset cause you really came from, from the compound world, right? I mean, you, you shot a compound up until you bought stalker stick bows is that is that right yeah yeah i had dabbled in traditional archery yeah. you know through the years i had bought my first custom um recurve in i want to say it's 1993 yeah and then um i i got actually uh, my first stalker in 96 i want to say it was and uh so i you know i shot a few animals with um, traditional equipment, but by and large, yes, um, I, I was coming over from effectively coming over from the compound, yeah. uh, you know, side of things. And honestly, um, when I bought stalker stick bows, my biggest reservation was, um, you know, boy, setting down the compound and, and going full time to a stick bow. Yeah. Am I going to be a 
vegetarian, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I have the same feeling, South. Like I, you know, we video for YouTube and it, it like, it, it worried, you know, it's something I think about. It's like, man, if I, if I have this bow, that's essentially, I mean, I tell people it's probably 10 times harder to kill something with a, with a stick bow. And it's not that the, not that your distance is 10 times harder. It's just like, you know, I can, I can miss an animal bigger and I'll get out at 20 yards with a stick bow, you know, like oh, it, the, 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 the air, um, the air, even at close ranges is much greater than w- with the compound. Cause that's, that's always, uh, uh, you know, on my mind, I, although, you know, I get, when I put, you know, trad bow videos up or I go shoot a hog or a deer or whatever, um, people really enjoy them. Um, it's just my own mental, my momental block, you know, um, and that's something I'm probably going to dedicate myself to more next year, just hunting solely with a, with a trad bow again. Um, and then I broke my freaking right pinky last summer, which didn't help things. I, um, yeah. yeah. Um, but that's, a that's here and over there. Um, and that's yeah, what, that's what yeah. I want to talk to you about is just like the mental part of it and like what, you know, what you get out of it as far as a positive thing. And also some of the like things like, Hey, this is going to be harder, you know? Yeah. Well, it's character building for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say that, you know, um, I, uh, I missed, uh, you know, a bull elk this year. It, I was, it couldn't have been over 20 yards, you know, broadside to me and, uh, had all the time in the world. And I mean, I had to, a little bit of an off balance shot, but I'm not going to use that as an excuse to why I missed. I just yeah. flat out missed. And, and so you really got, if you're a person that gets super wound up, you know, about, um, about, uh, you know, not being perfect, then maybe a stick bow isn't for you. But if you want to get, you know, the maximum amount of fulfillment out of an experience, um, and enjoy all the highs and lows that go along with it, then I think, you know, shooting a traditional bow is probably tailor made for you. Um. You know, and when when you uh, when you blow it, it's uh, you know just like anything, it you feel pretty low and disappointed. But um, when it all comes together, man, you know that it all you know it was you and it what you weren't relying on. And I'm not bashing the compound stuff by any means, but you know you're you're relying on fewer uh, crutches. You know, yeah. you have a, a release and a sight and a range finder and. And actually, I just started playing with a rangefinder with my stick bow. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think last season was the first year that I did it, and um, I found it made a you know a big difference for me. And I was, you know, I, I'm not a trad Nazi by any stretch. You know, I yeah. um, I still embrace you know the whole compound industry, and and I have nothing bad to say about any of my experience shooting stick or a compound. And I shot a ton of animals with a compound, and I wouldn't trade those you know, those experience and that foundation, you know, that those years hunting gave me for anything. It certainly um, taught me a ton. And had I gone directly from, well, I never did rifle hunt, but had I gone, say, from shooting a rifle, you know, um, or tried to just dive directly into shooting a stick bow and hunting that way, I think my journey would have been much more challenging and without that knowledge base and then also you know i don't maybe i i wouldn't have had the fortitude to stick with it i don't know you know it's it's yeah. uh, it's hard to say but i think you know the the biggest thing that i see um the the biggest mistake that i see uh with compound hunters that are coming over to shoot a stick bow is try is getting a bow with too much draw weight 
Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, it's funny, I've got probably three bows in my shop right now that I'm doing weight reductions on. Mm-hmm. And that's not like <laughs> three this month. That's like three this week. Right. Um, so, you know, and part of that is, you know, some of it is uh, guys that are starting to get older and don't want to be drawn as much weight. And, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if you can, I can certainly relate. Cause I mean, when I, when I transitioned from shooting a compound, I was shooting 75 pounds with my compound. And, uh, then I, um, I had my first, my first stick bow I ordered, I ordered a 59 pound bow. Yep. And uh, I was a 59 pound black widow and I could shoot it, you know, but not very many shots. And, uh, you know, I could go shoot around a 3d, but if I was shooting, you know, a, a Vegas spot there, I've been falling apart because there's too many shots in rapid succession. Yep. Um, and then you take, you know, a, a bow of that draw weight and you, you know, if you're hunting in a tree stand and you're, you know, in November and you're cold and those muscles tense up and, I had that happen to me, uh, um, you know, and this is well after I had owned Stalker. I, um, I brought, I was shooting 55, um, and uh, it's kind of a side story here, but I was shooting 55 pounds, you know, during the summer hunting mule deer, and uh, I just, you know, grabbed my same bow, same draw weight, and I uh, went out um, to Iowa um, hunting whitetail and, yeah. and, uh, had a nice buck come by me about 10 o'clock in the morning after I'd been sitting in the stand for three or four hours. And I'll be darned if I could only get to half draw, <laughs> you know, cause the oh, draw yeah. Weight, yeah, yeah. my muscles were so, you know, tense and, and, uh, from being cold, I just couldn't get back to full draw. Yeah. So that, you know, it's lessons like that, that, um, are really costly. And, uh, you know, it cost me a, a nice 10 point whitetail. And, um, I had some, another experience that I'll relay to you, to yeah. the listeners. Um, so a lot of guys that are, you know, going to go that come out here or, you know, live back East and dream about coming out West to go elk hunting, you know, feel like they need to be shooting more draw weight. And, uh, um, you know, which is certainly, um, you know, a logical train of thought. You have a bigger animal, you know, you hunt whitetails, you're shooting animals that weigh 150 to 200 pounds or so on the hoof. And then you're going to come out here and you're going to hunt animals that, you know, are north of 600 pounds to, you know, maybe even a thousand pounds on the hoof for a really big old bull. And so you'd think, you know, naturally you need to bo- um, bump up your draw weight. Um, I had, uh, I, I don't know, did you, have you seen that video that I did, the five foot bowl? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. watched it over so, the weekend. <laughs> yeah. All right. So that bull, um, I, I shot that buck or that bull with an ILF bow and mm-hmm. I had intended on, you know, shooting 53, 54 pounds. And my, um, I had a bunch of arrows already made up, had a bunch of broadheads. And, uh, you know, from the prior year, and I was prototyping some new longbow uh, limbs for that bow. And I, so I didn't want to, you know, change out my whole setup, have to get new arrows or new, you know, different weight broadheads or what have you. So I just adjusted the draw weight on that bow until my arrows tuned properly. And it ended up, you know, about 50 pounds at my draw length um, at 27 and a half inches. And 
I was nervous, you know, that I wasn't shooting a few more pounds of draw weight, but that's where my arrows are flying. And so, you know, I was like, okay, well, I still don't feel like, you know, getting new arrows. So I'm just going to roll with this. And uh, I got out there and when that bowl came in, you know, he came in um, to a collar and a decoy and I was between the bowl and the decoy and he had, you know, locked onto that decoy when he first popped his head over the ridge. And uh, as he started coming in, I knew the closer he got to me, the harder it was going to be for me to be able to draw my bow with, and get away with the movement. And yep. I had timed it at one point. I don't remember what it was, like 17 or 19 seconds or something that I was at full draw, you know, while that bull was coming in. And I shot him, you know, it, um, it just a handful of feet away from me after I had held that bow you know, for almost 20 seconds at full draw. And had I been shooting, you know, 55 pounds or something, I don't know that I'd have been able to hold that. Or if I had held it, then I don't know that I would have been able to execute a very good shot. And so that one really, that experience really taught me a lot because I mean, I got plenty of penetration, even, you know, with that bowl so close, a lot of times that arrow hasn't finished its, you know, cycle of paradox. So a lot of times, even a close range shot like that, your, your uh, penetration might be less than what it would after your arrow is stabilized, you know, yep. coming out of the bow. Um, but that one taught me a valuable lesson. And now, now I'm, you know, shooting around 50 and I can shoot that comfortably all day long. Um, you know, and, and uh, in those times when you, know, you might, it might be a cold frosty morning and, and uh you know, my muscles are a little more tense. It's not going to be as difficult for me to execute a good shot. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I noticed that we, uh, I watched your, that, that video you're talking about. It's called, it's called the five foot bull, I believe, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's on our YouTube channel. Yeah. The Stalker Stick Post YouTube channel. Yeah, I watched that whenever it came out. Um, um, well, I guess it was last year sometime, right? In the last year. And um, I noticed it. Yeah, it was, a, it was probably, uh, well, there's, so there's the five foot bull. Then there was one called the burn. Um, yep. and then more recently, uh, we're, we've got a submission going into the full draw film tour. It's another oh, cool. point blank elk shot. So, oh, yeah, nice. that, that, yeah, I think the, I think the five foot bull was probably a couple of years ago. Yeah, you're probably right. Or oh, I know you're right. Um, but I, I, we watched it over the weekend again, me and my, my dad and, um, I noticed that I was like, man, he freaking held that bow back forever on that elk. Um, and I, I'm kind of in the same boat with you right now. I, I'm friends with Tim Neville, which I know, you know, Tim, yeah. um, mm-hmm. he, he's part of the push guys. Um, and he, yeah. uh, uh, we were, me and him were talking this year and, and I was like, man, what, what weight do you guys shoot? You know? And I, cause I'm, I was like you South, I shoot, I shoot 60 pounds and I, you know, I think, I think your bow I had was like 57 or something like that. And I shot it well, you know, but I don't Mm -hmm. know what would happen, you know, in the middle of winter when I'm sitting in a tree stand, all, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah, I bought a, I, I got a 47 pound bow, um, now, uh, to, to shoot. And, uh, yeah, just more, more or less just to get a little more accuracy for, for myself out of it. Um, I think, I think that's Mm -hmm. the point you were making. It's, it's real hard to be, um, starting off, especially being accurate when you're pulling back more than you can, you know, hold for a second. <laughs> um, yeah. 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 I think, you know, a lot of it, um, 
comes down to, for some guys, uh, you know, and, and I would certainly have to raise my hand on this one. It came down to ego there for a while for yep. me until I realized that, you know, that my ego was, <laughs> wasn't helping me. Mm-hmm. It was only hindering me. And, yep. you know, I'd much rather, you know, boost my ego holding the big buck than boost my ego by shooting more weight than was, you know, prudent to be hunting with. So, oh, yeah. and then not, you know, then blow it when I had my opportunity. Yeah. That happens with compounds too, for sure. Oh yeah. Um, yep. Some of the, yeah, I remember uh, back yep. in the you know eighties shooting 85 pounds, you yeah. know, cause that's what the guys at the shop were shooting, you know, knuckle draggers. And, yeah. And, uh, so, uh, <laughs> you know, and I remember messing my shoulder up, but you know, refusing to go below 80 pounds and, yeah, that's you know, what I, a, I already have some elbow things going on. And I'm like, man, why, don't, why, why am I doing this? Like, just, just shoot lower pound. I talked to, a, I don't know if you'll know him or not, but his name's Larry Morgan. He's a local here that shoots some of the professional um, stuff for, for, I'm not into this kind of stuff. So I'm going to butcher the terms, but like the bare bow stuff and, and whatnot. Uh-huh. Um, and he, you know, he shoots deer every year with his. And I'm like, I was talking to him like, what do you, how many pounds do you shoot? He's like, I shoot 37. I'm like, what? Really? He goes, yeah. Uh, yeah. He yeah. goes, well, that's, that's what he uses, you know, in his competition and stuff. So he's just super accurate with it and super comfortable with it. Um, yeah. so I'm like, well, dang, you know, I'm, I'm shooting 20 yeah. pounds more than you. And, and I've got a video I've got to post up, um, here. I've, I've been meaning to do it and I just keep on forgetting to, um, but we, we build a little kid's bow called yep. a weasel. Yep. And, uh, it's, you know, pretty much from two well actually we've had kids under under two shoot them yeah and all the way up to my uh my youngest son is 13 and he's small for his age he's under five feet but he's still shooting his yeah um but we we i sold one to a guy in texas and his kid i think is six and he texts me this picture of a you know kid holding a, a weasel bow, all you know holding it up in the air, and he's got a picture next to a white t- or a mule deer doe. And I was like, ah, let let his you know kid let his kid uh, you know pose with his his uh, doe he shot. <laughs> yeah. And then he sends me a video, and it's his kid waxing this mule deer doe with that twenty pound weasel. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm not sure what that kid's got for a draw length, but I guarantee it's not more than 20 inches. No. So, you know, it's, a, I was like blown away before that. I think we had one confirmed kill with a, with a weasel. I think it was a frog. If I remember correctly. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to, I, uh, uh, you, know, you can, you know, you can do it without a lot of draw weight. That's for sure. Yeah. You know, I get people all the time asking me, you know, well, what do you think I should get for, you know, elk is, you know, is 55 pounds going to be enough? And I was like, you know, I just tell them, I said, look, I would go lower, you know, yeah, you're going to be able to put the arrow where you want it with a higher degree of accuracy with, you know, a little bit lower weight than shooting your maximum. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sometimes I, sometimes I can't people talk people into it, but most of the time, you know, I have been able to, and I, you know, I'd like to think that, uh, I've contributed, uh, more successful hunts in that, in doing that. Yeah. And I think it's also something like people don't think about, but like going, when you're shooting an animal, especially with a stick bow and a compound too, it's like, there's so many things that's running through your mind and, and that's just to, you know, to make a bad shot. Uh, and 
not thinking about, man, I got to keep this thing pulled back. You know, that's one, one less thing to think about. And it's like, I don't know. It's just a factor that isn't necessary sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. and now with a compound, it's a little bit different just because once you get the thing back, it's, it's back for the most part, you know? Um, yeah. but with, with the stick bow, yeah, it's, it's just another, another stress in the, in the process that can be relieved a little bit by just bumping down whatever, a few pounds or five pounds makes a right, big, big right. difference. So, um, yeah, I'm excited about using, using mine this year and, and, uh, yeah, shooting better <laughs> mostly. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, um, and, and for guys, like I tell guys that are interested in, in trying it out, it's like, if you, you know, if, if let's say you live east of the, you know, Mississippi or, or actually I can't even say that anymore. I mean, whitetails are clear out you yeah. know, here in, in west of me now. Um, I'm here in Colorado. Um, so, you know, I can't even say that. But um, you go to a state that has, you know, a, um, you know, a fair amount of doe tags or opportunities like that. Or even, you know, you get go out where you can get into some sagebrush and some rabbits or just your local woodlot rabbits or squirrels. And the, they make a, you know, great um, challenging hunt. But um, for me, one of the first, um, one of the first experiences I had where I had kind of one of more of those pressure hunts as I was transitioning from shooting a compound to a stick bow, I had an Iowa, um, you know, deer tag that I, uh, uh, buck tag that I had drawn um and it was one of those things i you know it took me several years to draw it and i was a little bit anxious about you know shooting uh um you know taking my stick bow along with me so i brought my compound but i also brought my stick bow because i got a doe tag yep so i you know i ended up i filled my buck tag and i had uh um one day i had one morning to hunt before i had to catch the plane to get um back home and uh, i was able to shoot a doe with my stick bow and, and, you know, it was, I'd like to say it was lower pressure, but man, you would have known it by how bad I was shaking standing <laughs> in that tree stand. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was wound up, but, uh, it was a pretty neat experience and, and, uh, certainly a lot lower pressure than if I had put like the success or failure of, you know, a three or four year wait on a tag. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and if, you know, you guys in the Midwest and in the back East where you have, the opportunity to shoot multiple deer, you know, drag your stick bow out, you know, when it comes to shooting the does and, uh, you can really make a hunt out of it. You'll learn a ton and, uh, and you'll find out just how much fun and how addicting, you know, hunting with a stick bow is. And, oh, yeah. and then, you know, if you're still not comfortable, um, or, you know, use your compound in the beginning till you fill your buck tag and then use your stick bow for the does after that. But it is, it is so much fun. Oh yeah. Um, and, and I'm not just saying that cause I build them. It, it is really a blast and it's so fulfilling. For sure. I, I've made a few self bows and I'm not, I've yet to kill something with one. And, um, I, I shot a couple bucks this year and in late season, uh, I ended up just hunting with that self bow the whole time. And I just had a blast trying to shoot something with that self bow. Um, I never got anything shot, but, um, yeah, it's a it's a whole different ball game, and it, it's something that like I tell people like if you if you're a, a a guy that's like not really a trophy hunter, but you want something more out of hunting, and uh, it's such a just a a great opportunity to do something um, that I think would fill that niche. Like, and you can be a trophy hunter and and a, and a stick bow uh, hunter at the same time. That's uh, for sure. But 
if it's something that you're just you're, you're you you want to get something more out of it, it's it's like the perfect uh, scenario for um, for guys like that or, or gals like that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Opinion. I mean, I you end up with a lot of trophy experiences. It's exactly. For sure. Yep. Yeah. That's exactly. And well, I and I'm not a good I'm not a great trophy hunter. Um, it's hard for me to pass up, you know, just a nice deer <laughs> and, yeah. and, 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 you know, that, that, uh, uh, using the stick bow really gives me that, uh, that feeling of, of more accomplishment than, you know, just shooting another 120 inch whitetail. Um, for sure. Yeah. hundred yep. percent. So, um, that's what I always tell people. And if it's, if it's not for you, that's okay too. You know, um, can we transition into like Western hunting now South? Yeah, I don't want to bore people too much with our our our, our trad sure. bow dog. I could talk to you an yeah. hour for about uh, about trad trad bows, but um, so yeah, I don't think you mentioned this much, but you're you're kind of known as one of the better mule deer hunters in, in the country. And I know you're a humble guy and probably wouldn't um, you know wouldn't say that about yourself, um, but I think uh, uh, in my opinion, I guess I, I think that's something I I see you as. Um, Anyway. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I've done it for three plus decades now, and yep. it's something I really enjoy. I mean, it's funny. I, um, I've just, you know, kind of the last three years, four years or so now have uh, have started kind of more um, consistently into elk hunting, yep. but it has not for a moment dampened my passion for mule deer hunting. And mm-hmm. I think if you know, if I had a valid deer tag and valid elk tag for the same unit and uh, there was a, you know, a bull and a buck on the same hillside, I'd be going for the buck rather than the bull. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I'm a diehard mule deer hunter. And, and part of that um, is uh, just the, you know, the high vistas in the mountains. Um, I mean, you can, there's a mule deer inhabit a lot of different terrain and, for me, I choose to hunt them, you know, where you have those postcard um, landscape, you know, views. And, and uh, that's what really, you know, kind of makes the hunt more fulfilling to me to be in country that just takes your breath away when you, you know, sit down and look around you. And yep. uh, that also, you know, I, I focus my efforts above timberline so that I can really more effectively spot and stalk them. Um, you know, once they shed their velvet, a lot of times they'll kind of hang out more on that fringe cover on the jack pines, you know, in the jack pines or the yeah. edge of the bigger timber. And then they'll go and bed into that deeper cover and it makes it a lot more challenging to hunt them. So I'll focus my efforts when they're still in velvet early in the season. And, uh, you know, I love, you know, just sitting there glassing on the top, from the top of a ridge, glassing basins and, uh, and hillsides and um watch them until they go bed up and then plan a stalking route to kind of circle around to get in you know above them or behind them and um and then uh you know take my boots off and try and sneak into spinning distance of them yeah. and, and i've i've gotten you know handfuls of yards from them and, and shot plenty at you know at feet rather than yard measurements yeah yeah, and and uh, if anybody wants to to see some of uh, Sal's mule deer hunts, it's on his YouTube channel, Stalker Stick Bows. Yeah, like like what's a couple of them like Thin Air. Um, you got like per, per uh, Perseverance or something like that. You got you got a whole bunch of them on your, yeah. on your YouTube channel now, along with those elk hunting videos. 
and they're good good right. stuff real good quality and um pretty cool cool stuff if you're into western hunting yeah i've got um a couple so when i first started filming them um i collected my hunts and then put them out on the dvd so yep. I've got two DVDs on my um, website that were still selling. And then um, after I did my last one, I think we finished it up about four years ago, then uh, I put everything directly out to YouTube instead of, it just takes so long to compile, you know, five successful hunts and, and I, and then, you know, get them edited. And then it just really with social media and, and kind of, you know, using that as a, a kind of a crutch for advertising and stuff, then it it just I think it behooved me just to put it out onto YouTube and and yeah. uh, so we've we've been doing that the last you know four or five years now and uh, so that's kind of where my content all ends up. But if you wanted to see some of the older stuff and and there's some really good hunts, you know, and and this it you know this is all backcountry stuff we're in you know between eight and ten miles into the you yeah. know wilderness and in a couple of different states and uh it's you know as real as you can get from a hunting standpoint <clears throat> all public land yeah. and uh so you kind of get to you know see me um try and fail try and fail try and fail <laughs> and then you know uh, most of the time i was successful but there are you know a couple of unsuccessful hunts in there and, and uh it's um you know it, it's pretty educational i think and a good reality check for somebody who's gonna you know who dreams about coming out and yep. uh kind of sets that bar of expectation as far as you know what you um need to prepare yourself for yeah for sure and that that's a i had some points to talk to you about and that's something i want to talk about i i've been out west probably hmm maybe six times now doing different types of hunts um, from mule deer, most of mule deer and elk hunts, I guess all mule deer and elk hunts. And, uh, you know, I'm, I guess more experienced than most Midwesterners, but I, I, uh, I, your experience dwarfs mine out there. And I want to talk to you about that because I do get asked a decent amount about going out West and, you know, it's always, it's always the same exact uh, phrase. Everybody says is, I mean, I, that's, that's a dream of mine to go out West, but then like most people, you know, just never get out there. And what sure. do you, what do you think, or what would you say to those people that are like, that come to me and be like, Hey man, I'd love to go out West and hunt an elk, or I'd love to go out West and hunt a, a, a mule deer. I guess, what are some of the, um, the things that, uh, people have this mental block of going out there or why they think it's so hard to go out there? Cause you know, I just tell people like, yeah, I just, I just went, bought a tag and went like, I don't know what the, you know, <laughs> I don't know what the, yeah. uh, the holdup you know, is. I think, but... I think it's kind of like almost fear of the unknown. Yeah. I mean, I can kind of relate to, to some degree. Uh, this is like the opposite of, you know, what we're talking about. But as a Western guy that like that, uh, that hunt I went on back in Iowa, um, yeah. I, it wasn't, it was pretty much DIY. I was going, I went on to some private that a friend of mine was an outfitter and he let me hunt um, a property that he, um, that he was leasing, but it was, you know, here's some tree stands, go for it. Yeah. And, you know, you watch the TV shows and it's <laughs> like, oh yeah, just go out in the woods, hang a stand and wait till they walk by it. It's easy as pie. Right. Well, I had 10 days to hunt and on the 12th day I killed my buck. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so, you know, it, it, uh, it certainly was no cupcake for me and I can, 
really relate to people who um, who uh, end up. You know, my wife was mad at me because I, you know, I my I had brought a buddy of mine out there, and, and we're sitting in the tree stand, and a jet flies over. He's like, "Hey, there goes our plane!" You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's so, funny. You know, I can certainly relate to you know kind of that overwhelming sense and this was hunting on a thousand acres and when you look at you know say a wilderness area that's a half a million acres and then you look at you know that's only one wilderness area within you know a state that holds multiple millions of of uh acres of public land then you know narrowing it down to where you're going to go um and i mean the whole thing and then it's like okay but there's you know, a, a whole bunch of states that hold elk. Where, you know, which one do I choose? Um, the fortunate thing is now that there are so many good um, tools for um, research. You know, yeah. Go Hunt is a fantastic one. You pair that with Onyx Maps, and uh, you can get a lot of research done just right there looking at draw odds. Um, you know, if you want to go over the counter. Here's my um, here's my take on you know if you're back east and you're wanting to do an elk hunt and it's not within your budget you know immediately say in the next five years then start putting in for um, preference points whether it be say Wyoming or Colorado or one of the other states that that you um, you know can build up some points um, and then you can get into a unit that. It has limit more limited hunting pressure than a unit that's just over the counter with unlimited tags, and uh, but at the same time, don't hesitate. Like if don't think that you need to restrict yourself to a draw unit. You know if you have the time and you have the money to come out, um, even if it's every other year, then start coming out and maybe set your bar of expectation pretty low. Like, hey, this year I'm going to come out, I'm going to hunt elk, um, but, uh, you know, I'm going to be realistic about this. This is more about learning, you know, a unit and yep. learning where the elk are and learning where the hunting pressure is focused than it is necessarily about bringing home a 300-inch six-point on my first trip out. Yep. And because, man, there's no substitute for experience. Yep. And if you can get out there and uh, and plan on being mobile, you know, if you're going to backpack in, which is um, kind of I, I love doing those backcountry hunts. And if you can keep your pack light and, uh, you know, even if it's like you go in for, say, three days at a time in, um, and you have three or four areas that you want to pick out, you go in, you know, pack in for three days, you, you hunt around, check out an area, there's no elk in here, okay, so I'm going to pull out go back to the truck, reload with food, you know, move to a different trailhead, and then uh, then go in, hunt for a few days, and, and be more mobile and cover ground, get to know country, rather than, mm-hmm. you know, packing in 10 miles with a 10-day, you know, 10 days worth of food, mm-hmm. and then being kind of almost stuck, you know, in that one area, only to find out that, yeah, you went in really far, and in theory, that should put you you know, outside of the range of most, you know, backcountry um, hunters, but um, for a couple things. One is that there are tons of badasses now that go in 10 miles without thinking twice about it. And then also you go in 10 miles 
and you better have a horse packer lined up to help you get that elk out because packing <laughs> out an elk is yeah. a lot of work. Um, so, you know, th- that, those are a couple of things about going in deep. Whereas, you know, if you go, uh, if you look for those, you know, ro- trailless areas, even, you know, roadless and trailless areas, you know, on Onyx maps. So you can get, you know, if you go into a wilderness area, don't just park necessarily at a trailhead and, and hike in, you know, three to five miles on a trail. But if you can find an area with some nasty looking country that there's no trails going into, you're going to cut out probably 90% of the hunting pressure because most guys are lazy and they're going to go <laughs> hike in on the trails. Right. And uh, so you, you take that this is you know what is it fed march 1st right now so yep. right now is the time to if you're going to look at draws or look at gaining preference points now's the time to start looking oh, at yeah. doing that looking at state regulations and then also starting to do your your homework on uh you know finding those those roadless areas and start putting together plans yeah it's uh it's crazy what, what you're saying right now because it's like it's the mirror Im- image of what um, you know, our, the, the guy that has the, uh, the hunting beast YouTube channel that started that Dan info. It's like, it's the mirror image of what he preaches, uh, on the white tail side that you're doing on the mule deer side. It's, it's hunting mobile. It's, um, you know, l- looking for those overlooked spots. We have a video called scout, scout hunt. And it's essentially telling people like you need to spend, you know, twice or three times more time, you know, looking for spots and scouting than, than, than you do hunting. And uh, it just—I was just kind of smiling as you were like going through that description. I'm like, man, this is like a, this is like what we do in the whitetail world. Um, it's a, we essentially mostly all hunt, you know, public land or just, you know, land our buddies own or what is free stuff, you know, um, out here in the Midwest. So, um, yeah, yeah, it sounds like it sounds like the the people that listen to my podcast at least can probably really re- relate to that, and and they probably have the knowledge of what they kind of need to do it's just a different species that they're they're um you know they're they're chasing after it's the same concept just different just different terrain different uh um you know a little bit farther drive to your hunting spot i guess right right <laughs> yeah i mean i so i lived in northern california up until what was it 2017 mm-hmm. and so you know and i hunted mule deer successfully for 30 years living in Northern California and never one time did I preseason scout an mm-hmm. area. Yeah. So, you know, I, um, and this was, you know, long before the days of Google earth and, and, uh, all the kinds of technology that we have, I was, you know, using paper topo maps and that's how I was picking out areas or getting to know areas and planning, you know, on how I was going to get in or, or what have you. And, um, I have a, you know, some guys are, are, have a, I have a bad wanderlust. Um, I love seeing what's over the next ridge and it just kills me the suspense, not knowing. Um, but I, um, I have really done well over the past several decades by getting to know an area and then continuing to hunt that same area year after year after year until some, you know, conditions change and it's no longer a viable, you know, productive spot. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've hunted the same area in Nevada for 
almost 30 years now and it's you know i should have abandoned it probably 10 years ago um, mostly because of hunting pressure but also because of you know animal quality um, has just really gone down as well Um, and then deer numbers too but um, i you know I, i have like this emotional attachment to the area as much as my knowledge of of the area benefits me i mean i could you know without being there in middle of August, I could, you know, have somebody call me on a phone and uh, I could send them on X pins as to, you know, which bit, you know, where they need to be looking at, you know, for bedding areas. And, and, uh, you know, there's going to be a deer more than likely bedded under, you know, this clump of trees or what have you. And <laughs> right. So it's hard to let go of that kind of knowledge, you know, and of, you know, intimate knowledge of a hunting area, but um, at some point, you know, if it's not producing for you, you're going to, you know, keep on beating that dead horse until there's, it's dead completely, or you cut bait and then you go, you know, find a new spot to, to start to learn and fall in love with. Yep. hundred percent. That's hard to do sometimes, but it's, it's really easy to fall in love with the spot and, and kind of wear it out to, to the point where you're you know not productive there anymore. Um, right. not, not you physically wearing it out, but other yep. factors. Um, right, it happens right. out here in the in the Midwest all the time. You got guys sitting the same damn tree stand every season and complain about not killing anything. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, well, <laughs> maybe maybe that tree stand's no good anymore. You know, right? Um, uh-huh. Yep. Um, I want to talk about gear a little bit because that's honestly probably the biggest thing that I get asked about, and mostly from buddies that are going to go out west. Hey, what gear do I need to buy? What gear do I need to bring? And, yep. you know, they always compare, you know, I, I've been doing it now. I, you know, I've been going out there for a number of years and I've kind of acquired over the years buying a piece here and there that it's nice. And all of a sudden now I got this, what seems like an extravagant, expensive system out there for, you know, for, for hunting out there. And you right. know, I always like to, to tell them like, yeah, man, the first time I went though, like I bought a, a $40 bargain cave Cabela's tent. And I had that, you know, I didn't have the, I didn't have a, yep a $600 Kuyu tent or whatever the, whatever the brand that, um, sure you, you, uh, you have. So I guess that's a, that's a question I get asked a lot about is the gear I take out there. I didn't, could you give some pointers on that or any, any recommendations? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so this all comes down to like perspective. Um, I mean, you, you look at the average guy now and, uh, you know, he's got himself, uh, you know, compound that probably just bare compound was between 800 and 1500 bucks. Um, then, you know, you throw another, you know, probably six to $800 in accessories and release and sight and well, probably closer to a grand and rangefinder and arrows Arrows, and broadheads and all that. Um, and I mean, that's going to certainly help your success and, you know, if you look at what I was shooting 30 years ago, um, you know, 30 or more years ago, even, um, I mean, my recurves are probably a f- more efficient than some of the compounds I was shooting back in the day, <laughs> um, from a speed standpoint. Yeah. Um, so, it, and I was still successful back then. So you don't necessarily need, you know, the top end gear in the market, whether that be from, you know, uh, your, your bow, whether that be from your arrows, your broadheads, your, um, you know, your tent, your backpack, or what have you. I mean, it, the, the better that, you know, you can afford um, those 
incremental differences could make the difference, you know, there, but don't, um, my, my thing would be is don't, uh, don't cheat yourself out of the experience because you don't have, you know, all of the latest and greatest backpacking gear. You can get on, uh, you know, out here, I live real close to Denver and the whole front range um, here, this whole mountain range is covered with tons of, you know, nature fakers, granola munchers <laughs> and all that, that have, you know, that <laughs> buy all the stuff at REI and then they find out, you know, that it's more than they wanted to do or whatever. And then they put it on Craigslist and Craigslist out here is a fantastic resource for that type of equipment. Um, just the exact same kind of equipment that you'd use for, for hunting. Um, and eBay is another good one. So, I mean, yep. you could pick up a fantastic MSR, you know, hubba hubba, yep. um, backpacking tent for, you know, probably 150 bucks instead of 400 or so mm-hmm. new. Yep. Um, and then you can get yourself a, you know, inflatable. So really, I mean, you don't need a lot of gear and, and remember also that, you know, from a simplicity standpoint, the the uh, the less you have, the less you have to carry. Yeah, and good point. So if you can get yourself a nice, you know, um, or decent, lightweight backpacking tent, um, and this again will come down to also say you're going to hunt Nevada in um, in that season in Nevada opens August 10th. Well, pretty likely you're not going to get rained on, and if you do, it's not going to be very much. So you might want to do a tarp instead of um instead of a uh, full-on tent and the tarp's going to weigh less it's going to cost less you could do a tarp for under a pound and uh then um but if you're going to come out here to colorado even if you're um you know that now the season opens on the second of september here you almost figure you're going to get rained on and you might get rained on um so your shelter i wouldn't do a tarp um, out here, I have. In fact, on my last elk hunt, I did a tarp, and uh, we got rained on some, and it wasn't that bad of an experience. But you're definitely going to have condensation, you know, on a single wall tarp, um, just like you would on a single wall tent. Um, but I wouldn't hesitate to hop, hop on eBay, pick up a tent that's you know a couple years old, and uh, you know look at the weight and specs. And I I prefer a side entry tent versus a front entry tent um, they're easier to get in and out of a front entry tent you kind of got to dive in head first or um, get down on your hands and knees and and uh, you know sit down and then spin your legs around whereas a, um, a side entry tent you can kind of approach and sit down in your in your tent while your boots are either outside of your vestibule completely outside the tent or inside your vestibule which is kind of a storage area there you can store your backpack in there you can cook you know in there it's easy to get in and out of if you have two people in the tent um then uh the the per if it's a single door two person tent then one person's gonna have to climb over the far person's gonna have to climb over you know the the near person that's one advantage of a front entry tent if you're sleeping with multiple people but if you're going to do two people I like a two-person, uh, rather a two-door tent um, with two vestibules, and each person's got a storage area on each side of the tent. 
and uh, by you know if you're hunting with a partner then um then uh you can split up the weight of the tent also and you're going to end up more than likely less than the weight of two one-man tents um you know that way and for us from a stove standpoint um uh, let's let's actually stick in kind of with that shelter theme um i prefer a uh inflatable sleeping pad rather than a um than a foam sleeping pad the foam sleeping pads just they're they don't have a whole lot of padding they're generally about a half an inch thick and they just you, know, you can feel a lot of stuff through them um i like a, an inflatable pad and you can get them under a pound or right around a pound um and i've had them you know spring a leak on me and and uh, go flat in the middle of the night which sucks but if you have a you know a piece of um, either ground cloth for your tent or a piece of Tyvek, you know, b- a root, uh, building material there, house wrap, um, then uh, a small sheet of that will provide good protection for your uh, mattress. And then when you buy those, they typically come with a um, with a repair kit that you can yeah. do in the field if you do spring a leak. And uh, I even you know with the even with the downside of um, the possibility of getting a leak, I I still feel like you know, a good night of sleep definitely offsets the, uh, the downside of, of the sleeping pads. Yeah. From a stove standpoint, um, I really like the, so, you know, a jet boil type stove though. I don't use a jet boil. I use an MSR, um, wind burner and, uh, they're, I think maybe a pound and a quarter or about a pound somewhere right in there. I don't know totally off the top of my head but they're super fuel efficient they run on a little butane cartridge and uh you pretty much just use them for boiling water and you can definitely get lighter um like single burner little um stoves uh the msr um i think they still probably make them um what is the name of that one it's a pocket rocket Rocket, yep yep and uh i'm sure you could pick one of those up for you know, especially if you went on eBay, you know, I'm going to jump on right now as we're talking. Uh, but I bet you could find one for probably 30 bucks. Yeah. I, I don't, they're not much. I mean, they're less than 50 new, aren't they, Sal? Yeah. 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 You know, and uh, I, you know, I, I've thought about, um, about uh, like giving myself say a thousand or fifteen hundred dollar budget um, at some point and, uh, like going, um, okay, I've got to, um, buy all my gear, you know, to do a backcountry hunt with this. And, uh, yeah, so brand new, they're 53 bucks free shipping. Um, here's one for 25. Um, you know, there it's, you're having to bid on it. So it, uh, it's not a for sale, you know, right at that yeah. price, but, but yeah, you get the, I get the idea. I mean, yeah. eBay is a fantastic resource for used backpacking equipment and you can pick up on, uh, you know, some lightly used stuff where somebody else has taken that depreciation out of the game for you. Yep. Um, and they use the same cartridges. They're not quite as fuel efficient, but, uh, I've had, I've done eight day, you know, solo, um, backpacking trips where I've gone the whole time and that was heating up a freeze dried meal, um, at night and then, um, 
oatmeal and hot chocolate um, in the morning, and I've done it on one fuel canister, you know, one of the 110-gram fuel canisters. So they really are, you know, efficient uh, stoves, those uh, kind of the more – the more – Oh, what are they? The uh, jet boil type stoves yep. where they they have that kind of the flame there that it heats up. Yeah, those, like butane um, uh, yep. stoves. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yep. So yeah, they uh, you know the the next thing I think would be a water purification, and um, this if you know kind of like what you're getting yourself into to start with, um, like where I hunt in Colorado. Um, I use a, uh, um, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm forgetting the name of it. It's, uh, Sterapen? Um, yep, Sterapen, thank you. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm filtering or purifying water, because I'm not actually filtering it. Um, I'm purifying water that like is out of a stream, good clear water. I don't have any sediment in there, so I don't really need a filter. Yep. Um, it's faster and uh, it doesn't add, you know, you're not using an additive to the water to chemically um, purify it. So you're not doing anything from a taste standpoint. It's way easier than dealing with a filter um, and it's faster. Um, in areas where I, you know, might be having to deal with water that, um, you know, is coming, that might be say coming out of a pond or a puddle or something like that, then I'll use a filter. And uh, I really like those, um, those uh, gravity filters, like the uh, platypus mm-hmm. gravity filters. Um, they, they have a four liter bag, dirty water bag that um, you fill up, suspend from, you know, say a tree branch, or if you don't, you know, in the absence of trees, you put it up on top of a rock. And then it runs down by gravity through the filter and then fills your four liter clean water bag. And then what I'll do if I'm, you know, away from a water source is I'll, I'll do that. Um, I'll filter four liters of clean water. Then I'll take my four liter dirty water bag, fill that up and then bring that back to camp. And then I'll have that um, additional um, water there that I can, uh, filter after I used my clean water. And those are, you know, I wouldn't buy those used. Right. Um, they're not that expensive in those filters. You know, typically you're going to, even though they say you can back flush them and you can back flush them, but they, my experience is that you're going to end up going through filters on those. And so I usually figure if, and, and if you've got really dirty water, it's not the best choice because they will clog up and you'd have a hell of a time you know, getting them to back flush clean enough that, that you'd be able to, you know, get a 10 day trip out of, out of one filter. Um, if you are going to be filtering water out of more murky water, then you're going to want a, um, a water filter with a, like a ceramic filter element so that you can field clean it and then, you know, scrub that ceramic filter. But man, they are a lot more work to yeah. pump um, through a ceramic filter, they, they can take some really nasty water and make it, um, potable and, uh, uh, much better than like a paper filter. Um, you, you know, if you have, if you have some nasty water, um, with a paper filter, you're still going to taste it coming out the other side. Yeah. Um, with a ceramic <laughs> filter, it, it does a really good job of removing odor. 
flavors and tastes much better so than the than the paper filters. Yeah, that's I've never used any of that the filtering stuff. I've always used a stair pin um, for mm-hmm. the for the most part, and it has some backup like whatever they are iodine tablets. Yeah. Um, but uh, one other one other piece of gear that I get asked about a lot and didn't touch on it was a pack. That seems like yep. one thing that uh, um, I don't know. I didn't skip skimp on it. I bought a Kafaru the first time I mm-hmm. I kind of went out um, just because I had multiple people tell me that you know don't don't skimp on your pack. You can skip on a lot yep. of things and not your pack. But so I, I didn't yep. know what your opinion on on that was. Yeah, I think there's two things you don't really want to scrimp on: pack and boots. Yeah, and uh, you know, I mean, it's hard to really to recommend a pair of boots because everyone's feet yeah. are a little bit different. And then also, um, you know, whether you like a stiff boot or a softer boot, you know, more flexible boot is comes down to personal preference as well. And I'm one of those um, that really likes a softer boot, and part of that is because I want, you know, when I'm hunting, I want a quieter boot that's gonna um i'm gonna be able to feel what's underneath my feet rather than kind of you know clot hopping along there and making more noise so i kind of subscribe to the softer lighter weight boot um you go through them faster you're gonna wear them out faster um and in a lot of cases make your feet may become more tired more fatigued because your your feet are flexing more rather than the boot being a really stiff platform for you to hike on um, but I feel like the benefits to me outweigh the downside. And I, I would totally agree with you on the pack side as well. Um, I've used, I don't want to say all packs by any stretch, but I've used a ton of different yeah. packs over the last 30 years. And, and uh, I've used some really cheap ones and, and uh, just had some miserable experiences with them. Um, my wife and I used to backpack the Pacific Crest Trail. And we were a section hiking it, you know, a section a year. And uh, so we'd do between 90 and 150 miles a week um, while we were doing that. And uh, in a, you know, on each leg of the trip that we went each year. And you take a, a, a uncomfortable pack, load it up and carry it 90 to 150 miles. And yeah, it really cements how important the comfort of your backpack is because it will it'll take a 60 pound load and make it feel like it's a hundred and then conversely if you have a really comfortable pack it'll take a 60 pound load and make it feel like it's you know 45 or 50 yep and uh so i i I certainly subscribe to that there as well and i've been using kafaru now for i don't know at least a handful of years and and uh got a number of their packs and all of them have been exceptionally comfortable for me. Yep. And they're the last year of the lifetime, you know? Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. I, th- I think that may, I think they may have a lifetime warranty on them even so um, they can fix them and stuff for you. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and they're, you know, us made, if you yep. need to get, you know, if you need to get your pack repaired, you can send it back to somebody here in the U S and you have it repaired. Yep. Um, and uh, so that's, you know, certainly a huge asset. It there. is just to know that you're, you're not yep. going to be dropping, you know, hundreds of dollars on a piece of equipment yep. that it, it's not serviceable once yep. you, uh, and, you know, have a stitch blowout or something like yep. that. Yeah. But then it's one of the only, when you're out West, at least it's one of the only pieces of gear that, you know, you're going to use every single day, almost in t- the entire t- entirety of your hunt. Um, right. it's, it's like we, we talk, um, 
we talk about tree stands and, the, and we, we hunt mobile here. So, you know, we, um, the hunting beast sells a, we have a tree, they have a tree stand, um, company and the tree stands $650, which is cheap. Ooh. It's cheap for a backpack though, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's a, it's a mobile stand. That's, that's large enough to be comfortable and it weighs six pounds. Um, wow. and it's, you know, it's, it's top of the line. It's the best you can get. It's something you use every hunt. It's a lifetime warranty. It's made in the USA. You know, it's it's one of those to kind of buy once, cry once for the rest of your right, life type of right. thing. So, um, same yeah, thing. How many tree stands, you know, would you buy, um, you know, ultimately that are, are not going to hold up as well as that one and, and not yep. be as comfortable or as quiet? Yep. You know? 100%. Yep. And I, that's right. Yeah. And when you're hunting whitetails, you know, you're, 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 you're hunting them typically close to where they're bedding. So you got to have something that's light that you can, um, I, you know, people always compl- worry about the weight carrying it in. I don't worry about that so much. It's more of, I want it to be light when I'm putting it up so that I'm not making noise and, and struggling with it, you know? Um, right. but anyway, yep. same, same concept kind of, so people can, can relate to it. I got, I got to tell you a pack story though, uh, South that I, I've never told on this podcast and it's, it's quite frankly hilarious. Um, I, that first year, uh, we went, um, I went out West. I was probably in my early twenties. And, um, and a buddy of mine was going to go out there with me. He didn't, he didn't get a tag. He just wanted to go and have an adventure essentially. And we had an adventure. Um, we listened to too many gritty Bowman podcasts and got ourselves all hyped up. And we ended up packing seven miles in on this elk hunt. So we were both in really good, you know, pretty good shape. I, I, I'll, I mean, I think he would admit it too. I was in quite a bit better shape than he was at the, at the, the time of the hunt, but all summer before the hunt, we were, we have a, a local uh, hiking trail here. It's called the Pinnacle, and it's like a it's a two mile loop, and it's it's pretty steep for uh, Southern Indiana. Um, it's a good 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 training thing, and we would we would throw some uh, plates, like uh, you know I'd put a forty five pound plate in my Kafaru pack and and hike up up and down that uh, that loop, and he would do the same thing, and well, he had some crappy Cabela's frame pack. I don't mean to bash on Cabela's frame packs. It's not there's you know it it's it's an okay pack and all that. But, um, anyway, they, the, so we had these, these, uh, weights in our pack, you know, we're using all summer and, uh, it's all fine and dandy. And we get out to Colorado and he's really struggling up there. Like, I don't, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, like, maybe it's the air, you know, or, you know, all kinds of stuff can affect, affect you out there with the, the altitude. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, we get like a mile in and, and, uh, he's like, man, I don't know if I can do this. I'm like, man, come on, dude. Like you got to, like I, we drove all the way out here. We got to go do it. You know, I'm just like, you're going back to the truck and you go into town and I'm going in here. Anyway, we, uh, we ended up getting in there and it was, it was quite a bit farther than what we had anticipated. Um, just cause we were, we were kind of estimating on, on the maps, you know, um, and, yeah. and we kind of got off track and this and that. And, um, we ended up walking seven miles before we got to where we, um, we weren't seven miles in. We just got a little bit lost kind of thing. And we get in there and we set up camp and, we get a fire. We we uh we get a fire going, and he's digging through his pack, and he gets to the bottom of, it and he'd left a ten pound plate in the oh, bottom of his pack. Kidding me? <laughs> no, oh it was goodness. it was probably the funniest <laughs> thing I'd ever I'd ever like. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh man! And then you think about what you know what that ten pounds. Oh. Of, that's uh, so much weight know, when candy, you're doing. Candy, food, yeah. anything could have been. 
Oh, I know. Like, dude, we could have put some hamburger or something in there, you know, right, steaks. Right, right. Uh, um, I had never, like, I don't think I've ever laughed so hard when he pulled out that weight, you know, that 10 pound thing. He must have stuck it in, like, one of the, you know, those. Those those packs that some of the cheaper packs that they got freaking pockets everywhere, you know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if he'd stuck it in one of them pockets and didn't realize it. And that pack's heavy anyway, you know. So right, I, that's hilarious. Oh, he's oh, a little man. bit he's a little bit crazy anyway and forgetful. But um, oh, I laughed so hard. I was like, dude, you just carried ten a ten pound plate up here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, we can work out while we're here, you know. Right, right. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you could I, uh, put a couple six packs of beer. In yeah, stuff. no, he'd love that. I guarantee that. Um, yeah, but he, uh, my my, uh, this was my experience. My very first that that uh, um, that evening after we were uh, we you know we got up there, um, we went up to the top of the mountain. And I'm like, let's just go up here and listen for the evening. Probably had a couple hours of daylight left, maybe an hour of daylight left. And we got up there, and, and, and he's not really a hunter. He's just more of an adventurer. You know, he just wanted to go up there. And I'm sitting on one side of the, the mountain or the ridge, and he's on the other. And we just sat there for like two minutes. And he comes running over the top of the ridge. He's like, hey, man. He goes, I think I hear one over here. I'm like, really? He goes, yeah. And uh, so I come over to his side, and sure enough, we sat there for a couple minutes, and, uh, you know, one bugles. I'm like, God dang, yeah, there is one down there, you know, in the, in the bottom or, you know, down lower. So we kind of not knowing at all what we're doing. I mean, this is just blind luck. Um, we run down there, and um, I kind of get, you know, we kind of run down towards the elk, and and uh, I get set up, you know, kind of tucked into these these little a couple of pine trees, and just sure enough, some of the herd comes through, and there's a great big, it was big to me. It was a six by six. It was probably like a, maybe a 280 inch bull, you know, but it looked like mm-hmm. a giant to me. Yeah. And, yep. uh, he was, he had a, a bunch of cows and there was a satellite bull that he was chasing around and, uh, they were pretty far. The herd was fairly far away. Um, but he would chase that satellite bull and that satellite bull would run, kind of run to, to us, you know, when he would chase it away. And, uh, I told him like, I'm going to shoot that satellite, you know, I'm going to shoot the first bull I see. I've never been out there. And, uh, he, he finally chased it to like 50 yards and I shot him and uh, hit him just square in the shoulder. And uh, we never found that bull. Um, but looking back on it, I'm, I'm, it's probably like we were, we were in over our heads where we were at. Um, but like you said, there's a, you, you, yeah, you got to be careful when you're elk hunting to get in a scenario yeah. where you get yourself into some, some trouble physically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No doubt. No um, doubt. But yeah, I think, I think, uh, that's all good information. And it's such a, like you said, it's such a mystery for people in the Midwest to go out there and do it. Um, but once you get out there, it's, it's fun. And, um, some of the best hunts you'll ever, you'll ever go on. Yeah. I mean, it's such a fulfilling experience. And, and uh, I mean, if you keep in perspective, the adventure of it, um, you know, and and don't focus all of your, you know, all of your, um, attention and all of, those efforts and, and weigh like the success of the hunt on whether you notch a tag, but you know, about the experience, then, you know, you can come away with a hunt with a tag that's not been notched and still feel like you you had an incredible experience and, and it was, you know, well worth your vacation time and all the preparation that you put into it. And, and then you start, you know, putting, 
um, those experiences in the bank and uh, and they're going to help you out, you know, those years down the road when you draw that limited entry unit and uh, and then you have a much higher chance of capitalizing on uh, on one of those tags, you know, when those um, experiences or those opportunities come up. Yep. Yep. For sure. Um, yep. And that's what I got. A, I got a friend here. I, I think, you know, Alan uh, Clark, don't you? Oh, South? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. He lives here. Dude. Yep. Lives here uh, next to me, next, next town over. And we've become pretty good friends. And, um, you know, he always tells me, he's like, Hey, he's like, you want to go? And he's, I'm like, yeah, I'd like to go. He goes, well, you better get going. Cause you don't get any, you don't get any younger, you know, <laughs> it doesn't mm-hmm. get any easier. That's the truth. And, uh, he's had a, he's had a lifetime full of adventure. So, um, I think- yeah, he, that guy, you know, is, uh, one of those quiet dudes that doesn't, you know, isn't, doesn't necessarily register across the country as one mm-hmm. of the, you know, more accomplished hunters. No. But man, that guy has done some stuff, and mm-hmm. and you talk about like the ultimate DIY dude, man. Oh he is, man, he has done it and done it on a yeah. you know on a budget. Yep. Don't uh, you don't no reason to uh, try to look him up on Facebook or Instagram or anything. He's not on any of that stuff. And I think mm-hmm. he, I and I I think I'm right in this south, but I think he's he's hunted 47 of the 50 states, and he's killed I think he's killed something with a with a longbow and in all of them now. Other than you know those three that he has left, yep. Mm-hmm. And I think I think the ones he has left is just kind of the you know states you can just go hunt. You know, it's like the eastern states that nobody really um, thinks much about going hunting there. But he's kind of knocked out Hawaii and Alaska and and um, all that stuff. Yep. So yep. Um, yeah, yeah, it's really impressive. I did a podcast with him a handful of years back, mm-hmm. and uh, I think we call it the Fifty State Slam. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, super, super cool guy. And um, I think that's that's something I, I one we'll go back to traditional archery now. But it's like it's one of the reasons I love traditional archery is because like the people you meet that that do this kind of stuff are just amazing, you know. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. the people that that are successful um, at it, um, you know, it, there's a there's a little like in our I don't know if you want to call it group or the um, um, the, mm, the following of, of the whitetail industry, you know, we, you have these debates on like, who's the best hunter and, and they throw out these names and I just like kind of shake my head. I'm like, man, you guys don't even have a clue on like the type of people that are out there hunting. Right. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, man, you got guys There's like a lot Alan, of that, people out there yeah. that just, you never hear about. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, uh, that's for sure. Alan, um, and you know, there's there's more than than just him out there too, um, yeah. But yeah, he went to Hawaii I think uh, last January and killed a just his wife had a had a trip for work or something in Hawaii and he and he hadn't been out there so he just went out there and he I think he shot a axis deer or whatever they're called out there just by himself yep. on some some land he found you know um, yeah seems like a kind of guy that you could put him in New York City and if he told him there's a deer there he'd probably figure out a way to get an arrow in it with his longbow but. Yeah, those axis deer are no joke, too. They're yeah. like whitetail on crack, man. Yeah. I mean, they are so wired, it's not even funny. Yeah. <clears throat> yep. Yeah. They, I've hunted them before myself, and <laughs> yeah. trying to get close to them was uh, exercise and futility. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Um, one other thing I want to talk to you before we get off here. I know we've been on here long. 
Um, but the uh, I kind of always wanted to go out and hunt uh, blacktail. Now you you lived in Col- in um, California for most of your life, I think. Did you guys yeah. hunt a lot of blacktail out there? Yeah, I think I probably shot maybe fifteen Pope and Young class whitetails during that time. Blacktail, you um, mean? Yeah, sorry, yes, yeah, blacktails. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. And uh, yeah, I, I spent a lot of time in the wilderness areas there in Northern California, and that's kind of where I cut my teeth on that backcountry backpack hunting. And uh, um, they are, yeah, they're they're very really, very challenging. Um, they you know, I hunted them like I wanted to hunt mule deer yeah. to the best degree that I could, though they don't really behave all that much like mule deer as far as like bedding in the open or like They're... that. Most of the time they'll, you know, if you can catch them feeding in the morning or evening out in the open, then they're going to retreat to heavier cover to bed. And uh, so it, they're more challenging in, in my experience to hunt the mule deer and, uh, um, you know, of course, uh, smaller bodied and smaller antlers, but they are a tremendous challenge and a great adversary. And, um, uh, California, you can still get those tags, you know, by and large over the counter. Um, the quality of the hunting there is not what it used to be, uh, but you can still get out there and backpack into some of those, you know, wilderness areas, whether it be the Marble Mountain the Trinity Alps or Yola Boli wilderness areas. A lot of them have experienced burns over the last, you know, five years or so. Um, in fact, some of the areas that I used to go back and hunt have burned up and, and uh, it'd be really interesting now to go back in there to see, you know, just uh, how, how it's changed. And, you know, maybe it's actually helped the deer come back more um, and then also mm-hmm. kind of reduce <laughs> some of that cover they can hide in too. Right, right. I think they behave a little bit more like whitetail than mule deer, don't they? Um, as far yeah, as in, Yeah, in a lot of ways, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. it's always, well, like, I don't know why I have an obsession with them, but like Alan has a few of them uh, mounted in his house. You know, I think he killed them on Kodiak Island, but. Um, yeah, those are the Sitka blacktails. So. Yeah. Northern California and Oregon and Washington have Colombian blacktail. Okay. So it's a different, different. yeah, different species. Yeah. Okay. Um, and those Sitka blacktails are beautiful. You oh know, man. And, and uh, you know, those you could hunt probably more like mule deer because uh, like on Kodiak, the country is a lot more open and, and uh, you yeah. can, you know, spot and stalk them pretty effectively. Um, but the Colombian blacktails, you know, there's, like if you hunt them in Oregon, you're hunting them pretty much like whitetail tactics, hunting them out of a tree stand mm-hmm. uh, by and large. And, and then you, know, you get into Northern California and it, the country's a little bit more open. And then in most places, or not most, but some places, like if you focus on the high country in the wilderness areas, um, then, uh, you know, you look at the uh, either Google Earth or in my case, I mean, back to the topo maps. Yeah of my day and uh and i would look for open country and then focus my efforts there and and i was able to spot and stalk quite a few blacktails over the years and and shot some really nice ones uh, you know and then and there's good opportunities uh in you know northern california to pick up a bear tag and hunt bear and deer simultaneously yeah something i want to go do i'm going to go do it one of these days i i'm 
I got you talked about an Iowa tag. I got, I drew, I'm going to draw an Iowa tag this year, and I got another whitetail hunt. I have to go. I'm going to go on. So I don't know if I'm going to get out there this year, but it's definitely something that I'm going to check off my list here before too long. Um, don't yeah, know why I, it's I, not. It's not something people <laughs> typically talk about wanting to go right, do. But no, I just, I just, not. I uh, for some reason I got an obsession with deer, and that that yeah. uh, those are something something I want to do. Me and we were going to go out to. Um, go try to shoot a coos deer uh, last January, but we ended up not not going out there, out to uh, um, Arizona. But uh, that's another yeah, one for, I'd like you, to. You know, for for guys that are blue collar workers that don't have enough zeros on their tax returns, you know, like myself, making an attainable goal like doing the deer slam. Yeah, you know, and shooting all five species of deer is certainly an attainable thing. You can do, you know, do all those DIY. I mean, especially like as whitetails head west there's an increasing amount of whitetails on public land you yep. know whether from the dakotas on west and and uh so you know it's conceivable that you could do you know a whitetail coos deer um, mule deer columbia blacktail sitka blacktail hunt and the most expensive one out of those is going to be the sitka blacktail because you have to you know travel up to kodiak but you yep. can still you can still do those or Southeast Alaska, but you can still do those over the counter without a guy. Yep. Yep. Just gotta, just gotta get up there. That's the hard part. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, cool. No South. I, I appreciate you getting on, on here. Are you, are you going to be at any of the, uh, archery shoots this year, like ETAR or Compton or any of that? You know, um, I, I had planned on doing Compton's and ETAR this year. I did Kalamazoo, um, and when I look at it from a business standpoint, um, it's just, it's really hard to justify. Yeah. Um, it took us a week out of production, um, at the shop here to, to do Kalamazoo, which is, a you know, basically a, a two day show, even though it stretches over three, yeah. um, you know, between it, it takes us, you know, a, a good day and a half to pack up for it. Then there's a, you know, a portion of a day to travel because we were flying and yep. then you have the three days and then you get back and there's a day of unpacking. And, uh, just, you know, I love getting out there and seeing people and going to the shoots and, and, uh, shaking hands and meeting customers and all that. Um, uh, but man, financially, it's just, it, it was, uh, it, it's hard to make it pencil out. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm not certain that I'll do it this year. I'll have to just kind of see what shape my stock bow supply is in and, and uh, how, you know, if I'm backed up too much as um, get closer to hunting season and stuff. But um, I had fully intended on going to both Compton's and ETAR, but it's not looking all that great now for 2022. Yeah, that's, that's a big struggle uh, as far as a difference in, in buying a compound versus a traditional bow. It's oftentimes hard to find a place to uh, – to go and shoot them, you know, before you buy them type of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I may, um, I may ship some bows back to like Tim, yeah. um, brought some stuff to ETAR for me last year and I may mm-hmm. do that again just so people can, can you know, shoot them have a, a chance just to shoot them. So I may do something like that again. Yeah. That's cool. So yeah, I was going to, I was going to mention if anybody wants to, to check out your stuff if, and, and shoot some of it to come to one of those, uh, traditional archery events and kind of around the Midwest, but, um, yeah, we do a test drive program also. Okay. So if you look, you know, if you uh, if are interested in trying out a bow before you buy, it's forty five bucks shipping round trip, and 
and uh, you get to hang on to the bow for a week and and uh, you don't have to uh, you know you don't have to spend 900 bucks or a thousand bucks or north of that on, yeah. uh, on one to only find out that the grip doesn't quite suit you or, right. or you know just a couple pounds too heavy or whatever yeah no that's awesome um what else south i make sure everybody goes and checks out south's uh youtube channel stalker stick bows it's it's worth your watch i i love watching your videos it's um, kudos to you on those videos are pretty pretty entertaining yeah thank you thank um, you i i certainly appreciate that and if you get go on to our um instagram page we post up all of our stock bows um that we build that we put onto our website we post them up there as well and, and then like if you want to look at woods different wood combinations mm -hmm. for bows then that's a great resource there and and then we almost always have um you know a, at least a decent selection of stock bows mm -hmm. uh, for sale and and we've got a fair amount right now yeah um, we we built a pile to go to kalamazoo and uh we brought home quite a few and uh so you can um you know those are buy them you know by say noon and they ship the same day or you know after that ship the next day yep 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 oh all right south i appreciate it right now yep, <laughs> sure thing man all right have a good one. Yep. see you bye bye